Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and as always, you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Last Thursday evening, we held the second installment of our monthly Blister Speaker Series at Western Colorado University, where we host influential figures of the outdoor industry right here in the beautiful Gunnison Valley of Colorado. Our guest this time was Eric Larson. Eric is a polar adventurer, expedition guide, climate educator, and a lot more. Eric got his start in dog sledding and has gone on to forge a career in adventure and advocacy. Among other things, he is the first person to do expeditions to the North Pole, South Pole, and Mount Everest within a 365-day period, and he uses his trips as a platform for educating a broad audience about climate change. Eric and I had a great time at a couple of classes at Western, where Eric was able to address some specific topics and student groups. And then, of course, we also had our Thursday night main event, where Eric gave a presentation on some of the incredible places he's been and why he goes. Then I had a chance to interview Eric, and then we turned the mic over to Western students to let them conduct their own Q&A with Eric. Our Thursday event began with Eric giving a presentation that focused on his 2014 expedition to the North Pole, which is the subject of his book, On Thin Ice. On this expedition, he and his partner, Ryan Waters, crossed 500 miles of broken ice from northern Elsamere Island to the geographic North Pole. They went unsupported, which means that they brought all of their own supplies with them on sleds that initially weighed 325 pounds, which they had to drag through snow and paddle across icy waters. Due to climate change's effects on the Arctic, this is expected to be the last human-powered trip to the North Pole ever. In his talk, Eric goes over the unique obstacles that he and his expedition partner Ryan faced on the trip. Navigating the terrain, being stalked by polar bears, running out of food, and perhaps most difficult of all, remaining optimistic under such harsh, monotonous conditions. Eric's presentation clearly demonstrates his love of adventure, his desire to help protect these places from climate change, and his ability to persevere while remaining lighthearted. If you're interested in learning more about the details of his adventures, or if you just want to see some sweet pictures of penguins, the video of his talk will be up on YouTube on March 15th on Western Colorado University's YouTube channel. Eric finished up his presentation on Thursday by sharing a recording of an update he gave via satellite phone during his North Pole expedition. It's an emotional call that very effectively conveys the extreme mental and physical difficulties that go hand in hand with such missions. So we're going to play that for you now. Then it's on to my conversation with Eric Larson. You gotta go. Hey, this is Eric calling in. Um, Just wanted to give you a quick quick update. We're 19.1 miles away from the pole and things are really, really difficult. there's water everywhere, there's leaves everywhere, there's broken ice everywhere, the pans are small. Um, it's, uh, you know, we're just kind of 
get stuck in these areas that are like peninsulas surrounded by water and having to put in the dry suits and swim quite a bit and it's been snowing and it's sort of white out and so um, I fall I fall fell through twice yesterday with once with one foot, once with both feet. I think Ryan went in. We just punched through on random occasions because you just can't see anything. And uh, you know our progress is just really slow because we're trying to find ways through and we're just veering backwards at times just to get through some of the stuff and it's just crazy all the things that we have to do. Um, it's just crazy. So we're gonna keep going. And see what happens. Thanks for following along. We still remain optimistic and are persevering towards our goal and are working well together. This last scene you played, or this voice recording, I should say, it's a pretty good uh, summation of sort of doing difficult things. Why do you think that it's still important to do hard things? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think, um, yeah, I think I think we have, like, this is a bigger, maybe societal, like, philosophical question. But I do think there's a lot of value in being uncomfortable. I think there's a lot of value in having less. Um, I think there's a, val a lot of value in minimalism. And I think when you put, and I also think there's a lot of value in working towards a goal, whatever it is. So I think when you combine all those things, oftentimes it, for me, it's very easy to put that on a difficult adventure. And I think there are a lot of valuable lessons to be learned kind of about those things, about kind of working through uncertainty, fear, um, I think using your body is a, is a very important thing for us to do in whatever capacity. So I think there's a lot of valuable lessons that can be learned from discomfort and having less. Going from a philosophical question to, I guess, a more practical question. You're talking about the North Pole. We're talking about expeditions to the South Pole. We're talking about Everest. When I mentioned those three locations, which do you immediately think of as being the most challenging? Well, I think the expedition to the North Pole is the most difficult expedition on the planet. It's just an environment that's like no other around. When when we were kind of on week one of our North Pole expedition, I've done three full North Pole expeditions. And Ryan, my partner, who's like a tough-as-nails dude, he was a football player, not a real emotional guy, um, skied across Antarctica, has climbed Everest three or four 800 times. I don't know what it is, but, uh, he, he was like, I feel like I'm in kindergarten out here. And it's just a, it's, 
it's hard to fathom. And so that's why I like to show pictures and kind of show some of it. But um, especially when people come from a mountaineering background, just the the level of severity, what that environment is in terms of like how it's constantly changing. There's no relaxing. Like you go up a mountain and you have a kind of a set route and sure you can get avalanched out or whatever. You can go up a different route. But if you're doing a big 8,000 meter peak, you're kind of coming up and down the same route every time and on on a north pole expedition that route is constantly changing not only day by day but at times minute by minute um and then just the physical being in that environment is very difficult it's surprisingly a very humid environment um so managing your body uh over time is very difficult and a little sore can become an expedition and ending injury very quickly and the other part is it's just this ongoing treadmill of ice and so even though each day is a little different it's also very much the same and so the mental aspects of trying to manage that monotony and uncertainty simultaneously is is really difficult yeah so how often have you quit an adventure or an expedition, not because there wasn't passage, not because the conditions didn't permit, not because of a physical injury, but this was more of a mental, like, I'm, I want to stop now. Uh, I would say I've never quit because of like, oh, I'm going to give up. I, I will say like, um, when you're on a trip like this, it's a really very easy way to understand what's important to you. Because when you separate everything out from your life, a chair, a TV, a shower, and all you have is this little piece of tent and some freeze-dried food and a cliff bar, like right away, you know what's important. You're like, oh, I kind of miss my friends or I kind of miss drinking coffee every morning Um, because it's so stark. Um, I think for me, I've been pretty singularly focused on expeditions and, and I will say I've gone through, it's an emotional roller coaster. I cry way too much on trips. Mm -hmm. Don't ever repeat that. Um, But uh, at the end of the day, I'm still pretty focused on achieving the goal. I've quit on expeditions because of conditions and been relieved that the condition sucks because I want to go home. Maybe that's a little bit of spinning, spinning into the narrative, but uh, um, I feel like I've, I've kind of on all my adventures have my heart's in it, you know? So you seem like a really kind of fun loving guy who likes to tell a lot of bad jokes and what I don't hear you... Wow, what, you couldn't say a lot of good jokes? I, <laughs> I mean, like... I, I, we're, keep, we're keeping it real. Yeah, um, lead with a compliment. <laughs> but what I... You you sort of talk about suffering and discomfort in ways that sort of somehow end up, I think, making us kind of smile. Yeah, I mean, I don't want ever want to take myself too seriously. I mean, I would say that's like more of a life philosophy than anything. I also think... You have to be, you have to have a little gallows humor to do what I do, you know, because if you think about it too much, you'll get a little overwhelmed. Um, I also think like my sport is a little more unique. You know, the whole goal is kind of suffering. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that's my, that's my focus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about like a base jumper, a base jumper is, you know, they climb up to top of the cliff and they step off and they're in it in that split second. And for me, to get to that split second for me takes two months and it's, it's a chess game. And so my challenge is this long, so my process is that suffering. And if I can suffer better or less, hopefully, then when I get to that point 40 days in and that crucial thing happens, my crux, whatever it is, I have enough 
physical and mental resources to push through. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a it's a different way of thinking. Um, and I think that's maybe where that comes out. But I also think like we take ourselves pretty seriously in this life. And, mm-hmm. and if we can kind of poke fun at ourselves, I think that's an important, uh, I think that's an important way to live. That actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, when you're, when you're in it, you have to find those moments of levity. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is suffering. And so I, I always say I'm an optimist. Uh, on a, in my normal life, I'm like a, an optimist optimist. It's like that glass is not half full. It's like, full and overflowing. On expeditions, I'm a, I'm a realistic optimist because hope can be a very dangerous thing. Like hope is something that sustains you in life. You know, I hope this will happen. And when it does, you're so psyched. But hope unrealized is probably one of the most detrimental things to progress that I've ever experienced. Like when you hope for better conditions and they don't come. Mm-hmm. And then you have to deal with the mess that ensues. That's very difficult, especially when you have no other like visual stimuli, no other outs. It's just you, mm-hmm. you know, you're just in it. We were in an Alps course earlier today and we were talking a bit about leadership and we're talking about your partner, Ryan. Yeah. And uh, you went into a bit more detail about that trip and an anecdote that you were sharing in that class that I want to come back to, you were talking about is you guys have to drag these 300 plus pound sleds and when doing so, it is, you know, Ryan in the front, you behind or vice versa. And I think you've already established no knock on Ryan. The guy sounds like a badass, but you were saying that you had more experience traveling in this environment and that you found though, that it was important that if Ryan was say going left, when you actually thought it maybe would have made more sense to go right, that you would let, you wouldn't correct him, call him out. You would just go with it. And I guess I'd like to hear you expand on that more. I think that's a really, really interesting claim to make that it is actually beneficial sometimes for the greater good of the team to not always go with the best information available among the group. Do you, can you say more about that? Yeah, well, it's hard. You have to put it in context of what this trip is. and, And this trip is a to say it's difficult is a bit of an understatement. I don't mean to say that in hyperbole or anything, but it's a very difficult journey. And we're in situations where we have a very tenuous grip on safety. And we also have to make difficult decisions almost every second um, in terms of where we're going. Because if we go this way, you know, we might get a clear section of ice. Um, and if we go this way, it might be rough ice and it might take us two hours to go a quarter of a mile, 400 meters. And so we're constantly making these decisions. And when you make that decision, it's not just like, okay, this way is going to be easier. This way is going to be harder. It's the implications of what that means for your overall trip. Um, it's that implications, what it means for just that day physically and mentally and what the challenges are. It's the implications of safety. Um, and it's just like, if, we, if we're not successful, we're out a bunch of money. I mean, I'm not a millionaire. Uh, our pickup at the North Pole is a hundred grand. If we don't make it, we're out a ton of money without being successful. We're screwed. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of pressure on each one of these decisions that we constantly have to make all the time. And um, and so a big part of what we're doing 
on this trip, and I also think in a lot of other situations, is just a confidence game. And so our confidence and our ability to make decisions is really important. And at times, when you, if you were to objectively assess this whole scene and what decisions we make, 99.9% of them are crappy decisions. But they're all crappy decisions. And so we just need to make the best crappy decision that we can and, and be like, man, there has never been a better terrible decision that's ever been made in the history of decision-making. And so what can happen is if I'm in second place and Ryan, and what you do is you hesitate and you stop and you go through in your mind, should I go this way? Should I go that way? And every time we do that, we're losing time. You do that, if, if you do that for 30 seconds, 10 times a day, that's five minutes. Um, and that may not seem like a lot, but over the course of two months, that adds up to almost a whole travel day of time that we've just lost by that one simple thing of hesitating to make that one decision, you know, 10 times a day. Um, and so it's very important that we're decisive in that process. And we just, we come up, we're skiing up, we're looking around, we're seeing what's going on and we, and then we make the decision and we go. And so if I'm cutting over here, what that does is that really undermines Ryan's decision-making abilities or his confidence in his decision-making abilities. And so the next time when we come up to that a situation where he's got to make a decision, he's just wondering, oh my God, is this going to be a right one? What's Eric thinking, you know? And that's not only wasting time, but it's also adding a whole other layer of stress to the situation when we're just trying to like channel all that energy into our legs moving back and forth. Mm -hmm. And so it's the stuff that all kind of revolves around each other, all these little facets and when I'm traveling, you know, I've done trips with large, bigger groups and what we, we have other systems in place for bigger groups. And when we're traveling in a line, that person in front oftentimes is very focused on what they see. So they don't see the whole scale of the environment. Whereas you're in second, you're not focused on navigating. You're not focused on that one narrow channel. You have time to look around. And so we kind of have this role of that second person, which is kind of the cleaner upper. And so they can cut that corner if they see another path. What that can do is kind of piss off the person in front, though, because they're like, I'm up here. Why aren't you following me? But we, we kind of go over that system ahead of time, because if you're a leader and nobody's following you, why, why are you out front then? Mm -hmm. But each person has a role and we discuss what those roles are as well. You've spent time in some places that very few people in history have ever been. How have those travels informed how you do think about the environment and climate issues? Yeah, I mean, I have more boots on, on the ground experience in, in the polar environments than nearly anybody alive today. Uh, my first expedition in the Arctic Ocean was in 2005. Uh, I was there last year. I'll go again to the North Pole this year on a shorter trip. Um, so I have a pretty unique perspective. I'm going to take a step back, though, and talk a little bit about the science of climate change. Uh, I was in college in 1992, um, and I had a class that was called The Coevolution of Climate and Life. And... In 1992, the science in that book is basically the same science that's been discussed today. Mm. Um, there's no real changes, just kind of the breadth of knowledge. The computer models are, are better at modeling climate. Climate's a very complex system. There's so many variables, cloud cover, oceans, whatever. Um, and so like in this conversation, you know, many people are focused on, well, the science, the scientists are right. Either you believe in the fundamental principles of science or you don't. That's the bottom line. And that science shows carbon dioxide levels and other greenhouse gases increasing our atmosphere. And there's pretty set feedback loops that are affecting that. Um, and so this question, I feel a lot and I like it. And it also frustrates me because I feel like we're kind of beyond this point in, in certain terms and in the sense that 
we know that ice is melting. Like, what else do we need to do? Like, let's just act right now. Um, that said, I would say that the the changes in the Arctic Ocean, Antarctica are dramatic. Um, you know, last year when I was at the North Pole, we saw these big icebergs that had drifted up from Greenland, and that's unprecedented. That's because the the sea ice off the coast of Russia now is melting more in the summer, um, and it's uh, you know, those bergs are kind of drifting up and then freezing in, whereas it used to be a barrier to those icebergs getting in. The freeze-ups are coming later, the thaws are coming earlier, the size of the sea ice pans are smaller, the thickness is less, the extent is different. Um, there's a lot of this qualitative data that exists as well as the quantitative data from satellites, but it's pretty dramatic there. Um, you know, my 2014 North Pole expedition was the last North Pole expedition in history from land. Nobody's done an expedition since that time. Um, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Um, imagine if someone bulldozed Mount Everest. Uh, people will be talking about it. Yet the Arctic Ocean, we're still like, is it melting there like they say it is? Um, it's just an abstract place. Uh, yet there's been uh, dramatic melting there um, significantly over the past 10 or 15 years. Uh, in Antarctica, you don't see as much of those direct impacts of climate change, unless you're on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is kind of more uh, where the currents are. And there's been about a four degree temperature change there in the last 10 or so years. That said, um, I was just down in Antarctica this year trying to ski to the South Pole on a, on a record trip. And Antarctica is a desert. And I had seen more snow this year than I'd ever seen. And that's, again, kind of an indicator of warming ocean currents around uh, around Antarctica, more warm air is coming in. Um, and so we're just seeing warmer air, warmer temperatures and more snow. And so, you know, when you tug on one thing, it's connected to a bunch of other things. And that's kind of what's happening to these areas. Silence. <laughs> it seems that in at least many of our sort of modern lives, silence is something that seems to be just getting increasingly crowded out. We don't have room for it. And yet your travels seem to include extremely long stretches of silence. And I guess I'm just curious what you have learned from that or gleaned from that. Yeah. I mean, we talked earlier and, and we had a, a conversation and I'm, I, uh, for me, I'm very drawn, as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm very drawn to these bigger ideas. I definitely like the nuts and bolts of travel and expeditions, but I also like these bigger concepts that I feel like um, expeditions can teach you. And for me, I got into expeditions because I was just really interested in being outside in whatever capacity. Maybe it was going bird watching, riding my bike, going on a canoe trip, whatever. I just love being outside. Um, and I think that as a as a society or as a species or whatever you want to call us, I think our lives are better when we're connected to nature in one capacity or the other, one way or the other. And nature by its nature does not have radios or phones or um, any of these other things. And now I'm not a ludite. I mean, I use my phone all the time and I'm a photographer. I love taking pictures, but I think there's a lot of value in being in these places with yourself and being disconnected from this other life. People often ask me like, what was it like to come back from an expedition? It's all, the transition is hard, but I live in this world. Mm -hmm. And to be out in this other world is a really unique opportunity. So I think like society and, and is pushing against nature. 
And so we have to make an effort to get into that spot of nature now more than ever. And so I think that has some importance. I think being disconnected from these things um, can help in a lot of ways. For me, it, it's very fulfilling. I think I, on a physical level, I feel emotionally better when I'm outside and in nature. Um, I'm more relaxed. I work through some of my problems or issues that I have. Um, the air is clean. I mean, that must do something to my body as well. Uh, and so I think there are a lot of important aspects for us as people when we get connected to nature and when we disconnect from civilization. And I'm not saying civilization is bad, but I just think we started in nature at whatever capacity, and I think it's important for us to be in there. I call this the time machine question. If the undergraduate version of yourself was sitting out there in the audience, what one or two things do you think would be the most important thing that you could say to that younger version of yourself? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I, every day I'm surprised at like, how did I get here? Um, and I'd be like, remember that one party you went to where you drank too much? No, I'm just kidding, <laughs> but not really. Um, you know, there's a couple things that I would say, and it's hard because I wish I would have gone to a, a college like Western because I went to a school that was very focused on there wasn't an, we didn't have an outdoor program, so there was no balance to it. And there was no integration of outdoor programs in terms of like what a possible career could be. And uh, so it took me a long time to figure out how I could do the things that I want to do in a career. But bottom line, I think two things. One is there's no bad choice. Mm -hmm. um, people, I think, oftentimes look at getting a job or making a decision and think like, oh, I'm stuck in this. Like if I do this, I'm stuck and I can't do this other thing. When you're 21 or 22 or 28 or whatever, time is like your friend. You've got more time than you could possibly imagine to make as many mistakes as you want. And each one of those experiences is going to have a lot of value in whatever you end up doing. And so whether it's like working in an office and being an accountant, waiting tables, fixing cars, being a ski bum, whatever it is, if you're observant enough, if you're a hard worker, there's going to be skills or knowledge in that job that's going to have value to you. And so like, don't get, I would say, don't get bogged down in this idea that you have to make a decision that's ultimately a permanent thing. Um, because I think each one of those things has value. I think the other thing that I would say is the thing that's like to be successful, I don't think you have to be the smartest as I clearly uh, as an, an example of, um, but I think the thing that separates success in whatever field versus not is persistence. Mm -hmm. um, I think you have to persevere through obstacles. You have to have a little talent, you have to have knowledge, you have to work hard, you have to be focused, but if you can endure all the bad things, all the doubt, self-doubt, all the hurdles or obstacles, you're going to be able to achieve something incredible in whatever capacity. Um, I guess those are the two, two things. The other thing I would say to myself would be like, holy shit, how did that even happen? Sorry. <laughs> but I, if I was sitting there, I mean, I was in, in college, and I remember this guy, Dan Butner, bicycled around the world, the 49th parallel, 
I sat and listened to that talk. I was like, oh my God, I would love to do that. How can I do that? Mm. And so my whatever, I don't know how old you are in college, 21-year-old self would be like, nice job, dude. How did yeah. you pull that one off? Um, and I still don't know. That's pretty cool, though, that actually the undergrad version of you would look at you now and be like props. Yeah. That's yeah, good. Yeah, That's might good. want a better hairstyle or something like that. Or... <laughs> We're going to turn to give you guys the opportunity to ask some questions uh, very shortly here. My last question, I wanted to ask about books and what one or two books, and you only get one or two, yeah. have been the most important to you and why? Yeah, I love books. Um, inspiration comes from a lot of places. And I think if you have your nose to the ground and blinders on, you're not going to see inspiration because it's everywhere. And I think if you can just look up around, you'll find it in whatever capacity. And for me as a kid, it was really, a lot of it was books. And so I spent a lot of time with my nose in some of these books and my mind far away. But um, growing up in the Midwest, there's an area in northern Minnesota called the Boundary Waters, uh, which is an area of lakes that are connected by trails. And it's kind of the adventure spot of, of the Midwest. Um, and there was a, a guy, Sigurd Olson, who wrote a lot of stories about that area. He's one of the um, principals in getting the Wilderness Act started in 1964, as well as the Boundary Waters made into a wilderness area. And he wrote a, a pretty amazing book about um, a trip to Hudson Bay uh, called The Lonely Land. And it was, I mean, I must have read that like mm. 10 times and just been like, oh, I, going on a two-month-long canoe trip, I couldn't believe it. Um, and then another book, man, that's a tougher choice. Man, I'll just have to go with an Antarctica book, um, which is called The Worst Journey in the World. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Cherry Gerard. And he wrote a book about a trip that they went on during Scott's expedition to the South Pole in which he died, which was in 1911. So in 19, the winter of 1910 or 1909, they went to this emperor penguin colony in the middle of winter to get these emperor penguin eggs. And it was just a terrible experience. In classic British form, they, you know, misadventure, almost died, totally wrong gear or whatever. Um, but still a really well-written book. Mm. Um, and so I'd say those would be two big influences on me, but I could make a list of about a hundred. Um, definitely a lot of inspiration from books. Do you actually read much on some of these expeditions? You know, I used to read a ton and then I, you know, now I'm very focused on, you know, my job is doing expeditions and part of that job is kind of writing a blog and taking yeah. pictures and that takes, and I'm also doing very physically hard trips, yeah. which are long days. And so I don't have a lot of time when I'm for that. Um, but I used to bring a lot of books. I did bring, I remember uh, I brought um, Metamorphosis Kafka mm -hmm. on, on a North Pole trip. And, and I remember it was three weeks into the trip. We had been just busting our butts. It was so hard, crying all the time. It was overwhelming. Polar bears were jumping on everything, falling through the ice. And then finally we got a rest day. And I was like, I'm gonna sleep in this, my sleeping bag. I'm gonna get this book out and I'm just gonna love it. And so I've been saving the book and slept in till like 10, started reading the book. And I was just like, I almost couldn't finish it because it's a book about people's inability to affect their situation. Yeah. And polar travel is about being in a situation that you can't really change. And so what did I have to think about for the next like 40 days uh, is not being able to control my situation. 
Um, but you know, when I first started doing expeditions, their iPhones didn't exist. Yeah. You know, we didn't have audio. You know, audio. There wasn't a thing as podcasts, yeah. and and so um, it's much different now. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, this next segment, and we're gonna do this every single time now. We're calling this Western Colorado University versus Marcel Proust. So the way this works is you have an opportunity to ask questions. And if you do not, we go to these um, kind of iconic questions that a young Marcel Proust drummed up back when he was 13 years old and 20 years old. If you don't know who Marcel Proust is, you're kind of already getting an F right now. But last time we did this in our first speaker series, you guys were so good, we never got to Proust. So I was actually quite impressed and, and a little disappointed. But anyway, the floor is yours. And uh, But if if there are not immediate questions, I'm going to start with the Proust questions. So Western versus Marcel. And we start with Western. Um, I guess my question is, like, when you're standing at the beginning of one of these expeditions with, like, your sled and you're looking out on this, what's just, like, the feeling of, hey, I could maybe turn around and I'm not in it yet. What's that feeling like? Yeah, interesting question. Uh, It's a feeling that I don't like to think about. Probably one of my worst nightmares that I have is being like on day one of a trip and thinking about what lies ahead. And not only is it the physical part, but it's also the time. I mean, think about a point in your life where you did one singular thing for two months one thing with almost no scenery, oftentimes none whatsoever. Going, Waking up, coming home, going to school, going back home, not seeing any other person and not having anything but your mind to occupy. It's just not how we, it's not normal. Um, and so I would say that I'm generally pretty nervous um, overall, pretty overwhelmed and uh, excited as well because it's like stop talking and start doing. Um, and that's kind of the best remedy for a lot of that anxiety is to just simply move as well. So it's a, it's a mix of emotions. I would say that the more you do things, anything really, but for me, expeditions, the more you kind of understand these emotions and are able to deal with them a little better. But I would say it's just kind of like get going because the worst part is to just be sitting there thinking about it and, and not doing anything. So at least doing something, you have the ability to get distracted a little bit. Um, so you spoke that you've done some solo trips and some partner trips. Can you speak about the difficulties between being alone in these vast uh, environments and then also being with only one other person? What are the added difficulties to either? Yeah, well, traveling alone, the decision-making is a little easier. You know, you don't have to have a big conference or agree with somebody else. You're always right. Um, no, it's a different it's a different dichotomy in traveling with other people than with uh, yourself. And um, I'm, I tend to be a little bit more on the introverted side. Um, I know on like, it was about 30 days into our North Pole expedition, and I kind of moved the socks that were drying aside and I said, hey, Ryan, is it weird that we don't talk that much? He said, yes. Um, so a lot of times we can feel like we're alone. I would say that the solo trips are probably much more stressful on just the expedition side of things um, and the physical side of things, like just breaking trail. Like instead of doing that for half of the day, you're doing it all day. And just the weight of those decisions, as well as the self-discipline um, to, to kind of stay motivated. Like when you 
when your motivation or your physical ability or whatever starts waning a little bit to have another person there is a huge advantage. And when you're alone, you know, all that stuff falls on your shoulders. And so, um, that's an aspect of where having other partners is a good thing. The negative side of, uh, having partners is the group dynamics can be oftentimes very difficult. Uh, because when you get in a tough situation, you know, you're with somebody, you're chewing your food with your mouth open again, you know, your feet are in my face, you snore. Um, like, why aren't you going faster? Why didn't you do this? Um, it's never my problem, of course. Uh, no, I mean, it's just they're, they're like even the best intentioned person, you're going to get in an argument about something. Um, and so that's, that's hard. Dealing with those dynamics can be difficult because you literally have no escape. Um, so I think there, I, I like aspects of both of the types of travel. They both have their unique challenges and their unique rewards um, overall. What do you eat on these trips? I'm sure it's a struggle to get enough calories in those big days? Yeah. So depending on the expedition and what our goals are and how we're traveling, if I'm guiding, we're getting resupplies. So it's not as bad. Antarctica's environment is a little more benign than the Arctic. Mountaineering is a little different situation. Um, but say, for example, a North Pole expedition, we're starting out eating around 5,000 calories. By the end, we're eating about 8,000 calories per person per day. Um, and I have a pretty regimented food menu. We have a high powered oatmeal that's got like oats, granola, pumpkin seeds, sugar, powdered milk, um, sometimes put raisins or raisins, flax seeds, butter. Um, and then throughout the day, we're eating a bunch of different energy bars, 50 grams of salami, 50 grams of cheese, 100 grams of chocolate, soup. Um, so we eat those throughout the day, stopping every hour and a half or hour, depending on what our schedule is. And then dinner, we're eating um, usually a salty snack when we get in the tent because everything else is mush. And then freeze-dried food where we're putting extra olive oil and butter into it. And then maybe like two little cookies for dessert. But it's a pretty regimented menu. And our, our caloric needs go up over time. So we increase the calories through each day. And so we do a lot of portioning of that food ahead of time so we don't have a lot of extra packaging on the trail. Um, and as we, we kind of start out with like five days of starter meals, then we go up in calories to a little more volume of food. And then we have another bump a couple of weeks later, and that's just more fat. Like our bodies need more fat. Um, and then I also do a lot with um, different types of, of calories. For example, fats and proteins have more calories per, per ounce or per gram or whatever, um, but they're slower it takes oh, longer for your body to metabolize and get those. Carbohydrates have a quicker impact upon you, um, but then they also go away uh, sooner. So we kind of balance a lot of those proteins and fats and carbohydrates different at different points throughout the day as well. But the food planning, the, the, it's a huge part because that's our, that's our gasoline and without it, we can't go. And also when you think about uh, a trip like this, our two biggest weights in the sled are our food and fuel. And so we're always trying to, I walk around the grocery store and just try to see what foods have the highest calorie to weight ratio. Do you start with the goal? Do you start with the cause or are they embedded in each other? Yeah, it's a great question. I was actually in the class today um, talking and my first question for anybody that I work with or do anything or, or for myself, it's always the goal because the goal really defines everything else after that point. And so, you know, is your goal 
to just go to this location? Is your goal to, to do a speed record? Is your goal to travel unsupported? Is your goal to make a film? Is your goal to do some sort of bigger advocacy project? Is your goal, you know, just to like look good in snowy situations, um, whatever. That really defines all the next steps. And then when we're working with a team, it's really important that everybody's on board with that same exact goal because there's can be some friction that can come up if even though we're like focused on the specific goal of this location, there's different styles in which we can get there. And so we need to really um, check each other uh, prior to even like, okay, are we going to do this together? Yeah, let's talk about these goals. But that's really the most important thing for me. And and even when I work on trips with um, people, I'm not really as focused for the most part on skills, but it's more on personality and a shared vision of, of what that goal is. Are there any new places that you're looking forward to going? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on this mission. I, I consider myself a little bit of a dinosaur in the sense that um, you know, the skills that I've accrued over the past 20 years, I don't have a lot of people to pass them on to this type of travel with no one really being able to do another North Pole expedition. It's, it's like going the way of the passenger pigeon. Um, and so that's a little sad to me that said, I'm, I'm pretty focused, um, on going to what I call the last great frozen wildernesses that are left on the planet and kind of understand and, and doing expeditions there. And so it's, it's discovery in the sense of discovering what these places are like right now, because that's very different from what they used to be like, as well as how they may be in, in the, in the near future. And so I think that's an important part of understanding our environment to understand where it is now so that we can know where it's, uh, or how it's changed. Um, especially if we if we can comment on where it's been, but I have, uh, I'm always planning trips I'm going to the North Pole. I, I do some guiding too. So I have a guided expedition, short expedition, week-long expedition in the North Pole. I have a, a, another trip to the Himalayas planned for next fall. Um, I have a trip to Patagonia, the Mon Mongolia, the Gobi Desert, Siberia, Arctic Canada, and Patagonia Ice Cap call, kind of all in the works over the next five years. It's kind of my thin ice project. Again, looking at what these kind of iconic cold places are in the world and just trying to document them in compelling and unique ways. Um, so that's really what my mission is. You told me you were going to Wisconsin. Oh yeah. And I'm going to Wisconsin. So Wisconsin. And, and then I also, you know, um, a couple years ago, I did this trip across Colorado that I mentioned briefly. And as I was on that trip, I was like, man, this is kind of hard. And I also said, man, this is kind of fun too. And so I'm, I, I was thinking, what if I did all those in all the 50 states? And it's just a random adventure. Um, it's kind of the same skills and planning that these bigger expeditions are, which is what I really like, um, is just trying to lay out the map and like, okay, how can I connect this place to this place? What gear do I need? Who can I go with? Um, and so that's kind of fun. And it doesn't, it, it takes me not as long to plan and the budgets are like almost nothing compared to a bigger trip. So that's also in the works. Let's let's say two more questions and then what we'll do is uh, wrap. And just like last time, we are gonna head across the way. We can hang out there and please at that point, come up and uh, ask whatever questions that we didn't get to. Once again, Western just crushing Marcel Proust. I'm extremely impressed. Do we, do we wanna go two more here? I'm trying to think of the best way to word this, but I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, how do you manage your mindset in terms of preparation for 
maybe just an idea of a trip you would like to do in the future? How do I manage my mindset about a, an idea of a trip that I might have? Like in terms of planning it. Oh, yeah. Um, I think for me, sky's the limit on what where my mind goes in terms of like what a trip is. I'm pretty curious. So it's looking at maps. It's reading stuff. It's kind of tapping into where the outdoor industry is. And when I see a bunch of people going over this way, I want to go the other way. Um, and then it's just kind of sitting on it for a while. I mean, I, for me, I make a lot of my decisions in, in, intuitively versus like total research focus. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but that's just how I make my decisions. And so I kind of sit on some of those ideas. I throw them out there. I kind of look at some maps. Um, and then at a certain point, some of those ideas just become more compelling to me. Um, for example, this South Pole solo speed record, I've been thinking about it for a while, several years, and it just kind of fit into where I was at with my life to do it this December. Um, and then once I do that, I kind of start looking more at the logistics. I will do a couple things. The first is I kind of um, make a proposal for it, and which just kind of helps me describe what are the goals. And it's just defining who, what, where, when, and why. So I write all that out. And that helps me really frame what that trip is going to be. And then I just start parsing all those pieces out. I look at the logistics, how I want to travel, what the gear is. I make a budget, kind of. Um, and, uh, you know, I just kind of find all those little pieces and, and start filling in all the gaps where there's question marks. And then usually what I end up doing and what I've been doing more now is, um, like, I'll go do a training trip. For example, I was in Mongolia. I have a trip across the Gobi Desert. It's planned at some point. I don't know when, I don't know with who, but I went over a year ago, two years ago, I can't remember. And I did like a two week training trip over there, um, real low key, but it was awesome because, you know, rather than go there without any knowledge, I, I did this shorter trip that was pretty inexpensive. Um, and I learned a lot about the area. I learned a lot about the people. I learned a lot about the logistics. So I have this philosophy, which is train hard, travel easy. Um, and it's, so it's try to, put myself in these situations where I'm minimizing the variables once I get out on a trip. But that's kind of my process. I wouldn't say it's always linear. It sometimes can be a little more sporadic. All right, cool. So um, <laughs> so with all the adversity you like deal with, with those expeditions and stuff, is there anything you'd recommend to someone? Like, as I'll admit, I'm not very good at dealing with adversities and, and hurdles that get in my way. So like, is there anything you recommend as far as getting better with that? Interesting question. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm good at dealing with adversity either, quite honestly. I think, you know, part of, I may have said this earlier, but part of being successful is just putting yourself in a situation where you don't have another choice. I feel like I'm the weakest link in everything I do. So I try to build infrastructure around myself to protect myself from myself. Um, and the other thing is start small. Uh, I think so many times people take these huge steps or take these huge bites into situations and it's totally overwhelming. And so that's where if you go into like, let's say in this, you know, a trip or whatever, an expedition, rather than just trying to do the hardest thing you can think of, try doing a smaller component, like let's say a through hike of the AT, you know, rather than hiking the whole AT just off the couch with no other experience, go do a small section of it or do a, you know, hike over to Aspen and back or whatever it is. I, cause I do think like part of that stress 
is from this uncertainty and unknown. And when you get out and you're in a situation and you've experienced these things before, it's by far less stressful and you're able to overcome them. You still, you know, it's still a challenge, but you have a frame of reference in your mind and in your body to be able to deal with that adversity. And so part of that is just knowledge. And that just takes time and, and practice and patience. Listen, thank you so much. Let's keep this going just across the way. And again, great job on the questions. But uh, Eric, thank you. This has really been uh, a privilege for uh, us to get to hear all of these things you've learned along the ridiculous things you've uh, been doing with your life. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate the time, guys. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to everyone at Western who came out to our speaker series event and to those who asked such good questions. Thanks also to Eric Larson. And be sure to go to his website, ericlarsonexplore.com to learn a whole lot more about Eric. And you can also follow him along on his adventures on Instagram at elexplore or on Facebook at Polar Explorer Eric Larson. And if you'd like to join us at Western Colorado University for our next Blister Speaker Series event, then come see us in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado on Thursday, March 28th at 6 p.m., where our guest will be Dan Abrams, the president and co-founder of Flylow Gear. And while there will probably be fewer photos of penguins this time, I guarantee that we are all going to have a very good time with Dan. Thanks, everybody. Take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week. 